I'm very, very glad to be here this morning. As uh, has already been mentioned several times, uh, I mentioned uh, Wednesday night uh, in Bible class and then also uh, even this morning uh, that last Sunday was a real bummer for me, and I hope it was for you, uh, just because we weren't able to be together. Um, we got up, and um, I had made coffee and had sat down to just a little bit of breakfast and had prayed, thanking God that today was the first day of the week, because it's my favorite day when I get to be with you, and we get to remember Jesus and kiss toward God and tell him that we love him. And um, my wife came in and made coffee and picked up her phone, and she said, it's snowing. She looked at her little app, and it was snowing, and sure enough, it turned the light on. It was still dark outside, so I couldn't see, but I could see in the light uh, some snowflakes falling, and then they got bigger and heavier, and, and then we started to call off church, and one of the members of our small group sent a text and said, uh, tell Rodney to enjoy his day off. It's a rare day off for preachers on a Sunday. And I told Paula, I said, I don't want a day off. I want to go to church. I worked on this sermon. I want to I want to open the Word of God. I want to sing. I want to be with the family. And so I was really bummed out. Um, but the only bright spot, one of the bright spots, the brightest spot of the day, uh, as Landon said this morning, um, as a small group, just several of us uh, got together and were able to take of the Lord's Supper together. And because it was different enough out of the norm uh, of what we normally do, it sort of heightened everyone's awareness of, of the supper and the elements and, and what God has done in our lives through Jesus. Uh, really made a communion last Sunday afternoon very, very special. So um, if there was a bright spot to not being together last Sunday as a, a, a body, a fellowship, uh, it, it was that we got to take the Lord's Supper. And I, and I know we weren't the only small group to do that. I know of at least another group that got together and, and took the Lord's Supper. So those are special times, so I thank God for that. But I don't want us to, to miss service anymore because um, I love you guys. I want to be with you. I want us to be together and we draw strength from one another. Uh, God made us that way, and he designed the church that way. So uh, we're very blessed to be here this morning. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to spend our time there. All throughout Jesus' ministry, as he goes about uh, doing good, healing, the miracles that he performed, all of these stories that we read and we see about Jesus' life, he's giving us a picture. He's giving us a snapshot, a view of the kingdom. It's sort of kind of like a movie trailer. You know, sometimes you see a, um, a movie trailer and you're like, wow, that, that looks really good. I want to go see that. And then you go and you see the movie and everything that was good or funny was in the trailer you know, and, and the movie wasn't really that good. Well, that's not the way it is with Jesus, okay? Jesus, every good thing you see in this little trailer is just a foretaste of a greater reality that is in store for those of us 
who are followers of Jesus. But as we're going to look at in our text this morning, all of this that Jesus does is just a little bit of a, a picture, a trailer, if you will. What would it look like? What would it look like if the creator of the universe came to the earth, came to this planet, and in the midst of broken lives, broken promises, broken hearts, he began to recreate. He began to bring about a new creation. What would that look like? That's what Jesus is going to show us in our text this morning. There's a day when Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. And here we have on our map this morning, uh, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Caesarea Philippi. That's all the way up, as far north as you can see up there, Caesarea Philippi. You come down, those three tributaries form the Jordan River, flows into the Sea of Galilee. On our little drop point here, on the north and just a little bit west side of the Sea of Galilee is the, is the town of Capernaum. I don't know why I felt like I should zoom that in and show it to you, but here I did. Uh, Capernaum on that northwest side uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Down here out of our purview is Nazareth, where Jesus uh, was born and raised. But did you know that Jesus, when he began his ministry, he moved to a town called Capernaum. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that he did. A couple of chapters earlier in Matthew, it says that Jesus moved to Capernaum. Now, I doubt that he was ever teaching in the synagogue and he got, a, he got word that his uh, moving trucks were on their way uh, to Capernaum to bring his stuff. I don't think that that probably happened. But Jesus lives in Capernaum, and, and, the, and the chances are that he made his uh, new home there in the home of Peter, the apostle. This is uh, what they believe to be uh, the site of Peter's home. Now, this big thing right there, that's not Peter's home. That's just an overlook of, of the ruins. You understand that. Uh, underneath, you can look and see some of how that was laid out. But this is the, the site of where uh, they think Peter's house was, right there on the coast of Capernaum. Peter's house, uh, just north of that, the synagogue, way over on the left, you see the Mount of Beatitudes. That's where they believe that Jesus uh, preached um, about the Beatitudes. But that's Capernaum, and this is the, um, the synagogue there in Capernaum where uh, no doubt Jesus often, often taught. So one day, Jesus is in Capernaum. It's a very familiar story. The house is very full. Outside, there are four guys who have heard that Jesus has, has done some healing, uh, they decide to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. But the problem is they can't even get into the house. The house is so jam-packed, people are wanting to press in on Jesus. They're wanting to see, they're wanting to hear from him. The Bible says that when he taught, there were those who said he teaches as one who has authority. When he speaks, it's different than the way the Pharisees or the scribes and the teachers of the law teach. He speaks as one who has authority. So they're pressing in on him. They're crowding around him. They want to hear. They want to maybe see what he's going to do. 
But these guys can't even get into the house. You remember the story. They climb up on the roof, and Jesus is teaching, and then surely there are bits of dust and straw and hay that begin to fall, uh, and then there's maybe a shaft of light, and then all of a sudden there's a guy being lowered on a mat down in front of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> your sins are forgiven. These four guys, these four buddies, have lowered this guy down because he's, he's, he's paralyzed. He's crippled. They're wanting Jesus to heal him. And what does Jesus say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a greater healing, is it not? But the Pharisees, there are some Pharisees there in the house, and they're thinking to themselves, who is this guy that he thinks he has authority to forgive sins? Who does he think he is? God? And Jesus says, just, just so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he tells the guy to pick up his mat, pick up his bed, and, and go home. And what does the guy do? He picks up his mat. He stands up. Paralyzed guy strengthens, his legs are strengthened, and he picks up his mat, and he goes home. Jesus is giving a preview. Do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Jesus gives us a trailer, if you will. Sins are forgiven. Walking is restored. Maybe dancing is restored. This is what's going to happen when the creator of the universe comes to this planet and begins to bring about new creation. But you've got to understand that when Jesus starts talking about this kingdom, giving us this the snapshot, this, this picture of the kingdom, when he comes, there are other kingdoms in existence. For those here in this area, they were living under the kingdom of Herod, King Herod. But even bigger than that, they were living under the kingdom of Rome. Herod was just sort of a vassal king, if you will, uh, a puppet king for Rome. So, Whoever was the emperor was your king. Maybe it was Caesar Augustus or, or Tiberius, uh, Claudius, Nero, Caligula. Whoever was in power at that time would be your king, and that would be the kingdom in which you lived. And every time you walked down the Via Maris and you came to a tax collector's booth, you were reminded of whose kingdom you lived in because you had to pay the Roman tax. Right outside the city of Capernaum was a tax collector booth where a man named Matthew or Levi worked. Jesus came to him one day and he said, follow me, follow me. And that was, that was very, very unexpected because you have to know that tax collectors in that day were considered unclean 
by the rest of Jewish society. And I suspect that even today, you and I aren't very fond of tax collectors, are we? Certainly not in Jewish society. Matthew was a Jew. He got to his feet. He followed Jesus, becoming one of the, the 12 disciples. And then the story gets weird, weirder than that. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. He decides to leave the tax collector booth, probably a pretty lucrative uh, career, decides to follow Jesus. And what does he do? He throws a party, invites all of his other tax collector buddies together to come and to celebrate uh, sending him off to follow this rabbi named Jesus. And so there are some, some Pharisees that see this going on, and they treat it like a scandal. The Pharisees, they just always seem to be lurking, don't they? When you read the New Testament, when you read the Scriptures, it's almost like they were, they were like spies. They, they just seem to be lurking everywhere, looking for, for Jesus to, to do something that they could say, Aha! Look at this man. And in this case, what they say and what they accuse him of is, he eats with sinners. Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. You see, eating, eating, and, I, and I've shared this with you before, but that was a big deal to sit at table with someone. It meant to have fellowship. When we sat around Landon's table last Sunday evening and shared the Lord's table, we, we were all together loving one another, celebrating Jesus. And that fellowship, uh, we were saying to one another, uh, we love each other. We're at peace with one another. We're, we're all in this together. So in the first century mindset, to, to eat a meal, to share a meal, meant that you accepted, that you were okay with these people. And so the Pharisees see Jesus eating with, with Matthew and other tax collectors. This guy eats with sinners, and Jesus says, it is sick people who need a physician. Sick people need a doctor, right? Not healthy people. That's a snapshot of the kingdom of God. Some people who are on the outside get invited to be on the inside. And some folks who've always thought they were on the inside wind up finding out that they're really on the outside looking in. As you watch the calling of Matthew and the party the confrontation with the, the Pharisees and the response that Jesus gives, what you see is a preview, if you will, of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. There was another day in Capernaum. Oh, I wish I could take each one of these stories and, and preach a lesson on it. You understand that, but we're just trying to get an overview here, Matthew 9. We also see this in, in Mark chapter 5, um, Luke 3, 4, 5, somewhere along that line. Those, 
stories all kind of filling in the gaps with each other. But another day in Capernaum, Jesus was in a boat. He comes across the Sea of Galilee. He docks uh, in Capernaum, and a Jewish synagogue leader comes to Jesus. We know from Mark and Luke that his name was Jairus. Mark and Luke tell us that uh, Jairus comes to Jesus, and he kneels before him, and he says, Come, my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Come, please. He begs him. And Jesus says, in essence, okay, I'll go. As they're walking through the streets of Capernaum, the crowds begin to, to, to push in on Jesus, and uh, so much so that, you know, there's jostling. You can just imagine in, in the busy street people, the hustle and the bustle. And there's a woman in the crowd. She's had an issue of bleeding for, guess how long? Twelve years. The Bible is not very explicit. Maybe it was some sort of internal bleeding, but uh, chances are that it was um, a, a feminine problem, and she's had this bleeding for 12 years. Nothing has helped her. Nobody can, can help her. No doctors can, can cure her. And she thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch Jesus, I will be healed. Now, I, I could preach all day on that. But the faith that this woman has, if I can just get close to Jesus, if I can just touch Jesus, I'll be healed. And that's what she did. She touched him. And the Bible says that Jesus felt power. He felt energy go out of his body. Now, I don't know of any other miracle in all of the scripture that happens like this. Maybe, maybe you do. And if you do, please tell me because, because I, I, I want to know. But it seems like every other miracle Jesus performs or, or the disciples, they, they see a situation, they assess it, they look at it, they touch, they lay hands on, they, they speak, and the person is healed. Jesus didn't do any of that. The Bible says that this woman touched him and he felt power leave his body. And he asked his disciples, who was who it that touched me? And they say, well, <laughs> look at all the people that are, that are gathered around that are pushing in on you. How, how can we even know who touched me, who touched you? And finally, this woman, she fesses up. It was her. She explains to Jesus everything that's happened. And in the midst of this, can you think of anybody that might be a little bit um, um, tense right now, wanting Jesus to hurry up? Come on, come on, come on, Jesus, we got to go to my house. Can you think of anybody that might be a little upset about what's happening right now? Maybe Jairus, the guy that asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter? In the midst of all of this, someone comes and says, don't. Don't bother the teacher any longer. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus says, no, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And he goes to Jairus' house. And he touches the girl. 
He takes her by the hand. And you know, what's, you know what happens? She gets up. It's a preview. It's a snapshot of the kingdom. Wouldn't you expect if the creator of the world came to this planet that some dead people would be raised again? Some crippled people would walk. Some blind people would be able to see. What would happen if the creator dropped down into the midst of our brokenness and began to recreate, began to touch, began to heal? These stories may sound outlandish to you, and and they really ought to. (laughs) They really ought to sound wild. But think about it. If there is a creator out there, and if this creator decided to come to this planet in the person of Jesus, and if Jesus' mission was to give a preview of what God's reign in a broken world would look like, then you would expect these kinds of things to happen. Jesus is basically saying, is this something that you would like to be a part of? This, this preview of the kingdom that I'm giving you, do you think this is something that you could see yourself giving your life to? Something that you could commit all of your heart to? Remember Jesus taught, taught his disciples, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and part of what he taught, taught them to pray was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, that's what Jesus was doing. He was giving us a preview of what it would look like for the will of God to come and to be done on this earth just as it is in heaven. People's reactions to what Jesus was doing in Capernaum obviously were mixed. Some, some became, you know, diehard uh, followers of Jesus. Others said he was a fraud. He needed to be uh, exposed. It seems like the more Jesus' popularity grew, the more pressure there was on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to sort of discredit him. And in fact, Matthew 9, um, verse 34, look at what they say. Matthew 9, 34, the Pharisees, uh, after Jesus had healed a man who was demon-possessed, they said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. <laughs> they, they cannot deny that he has power. They can't deny that. But what they can do is try to debate where that power comes from. And they said that it doesn't come from above. Jesus is getting his power from the dark side. That's where Jesus' power comes from, is what they said. So what happens next? Jesus goes on a road trip with his disciples. Takes his buddies on a trip. This part of the story kicks in there in verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What if the creator were to recreate 
to create anew. See, that's what Jesus proclaims. And then it, it continues on and says, um, and healing every disease and sickness. Historians tell us that there were about 200 villages in and around Capernaum, that area around the Sea of Galilee. And the scripture says that Jesus went through all of them, went through all of those villages, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Um, just imagine for a moment the amount of need that Jesus would have encountered on that road trip. And all of those villages, all of those people. I wonder what, what was the opinion of all the people that he encountered. Surely it was all over the map, you know, the whole gamut. Sure, there were people who showed up with, you know, theological arguments, philosophical arguments with what Jesus was doing. I'm sure there were people who loved what he was teaching and loved uh, what he was doing, uh, I'm sure that there were people that didn't care. They were too busy, had, had no time for Jesus. And it was that way, town after town, when Jesus was healing. We see that what Jesus was feeling and what he was experiencing through a couple of things here in our text. The first thing he does, he talks about uh, what Brent mentioned earlier uh, about the sheep and the shepherd, uh, I thought he was fixing to preach part of my sermon. I, 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 lo I just love it, the way the Holy Spirit seems to connect things, uh, even though we had not uh, talked about this. But verse 36, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, a shepherd's job, a shepherd's job is to get the sheep from where they are presently to where they need to be, right? Um, beside uh, still waters, to green pastures, to feed them, to nourish them. And his job is to do that with, uh, without them getting maimed or eaten, okay? <laughs> he, he doesn't want them to get maimed or eaten along the journey. That's the shepherd's job, is to take them to safety and to get them fed. That's why, you know, sheep and you've heard this before, sheep are very dumb animals. Uh, they have no speed. They, they, they can't outrun a predator. A sheep has no um, hard shell like a tortoise where they can kind of uh, suck in and, and, and hide. They don't even have, you know, um, like a, a, even a skunk has a stink bag, right, where they can spray and, and, and try to ward off a predator. The only thing that sheep do or bah, that's all a sheep does. That's all they can do. Bah. That's why sheep need a shepherd. They have no defenses. They can't outrun. They can't hide. 
So that's why sheep need shepherds. And the people in Jesus, they had plenty of people telling them what to do. They had Pharisees that were giving them all kind of rules to live by. And the Pharisees themselves weren't even living by them. They weren't even living by those same rules. The Pharisees had religion without any mercy, rules without any grace. Listen to this analogy of, of the sheep and the shepherd. This goes all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, okay? The prophet Ezekiel is, this is an indictment to the, to the Jewish leaders, okay? The Jewish leaders of the day. This is Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. That was the prophet's indictment on the Jewish leaders of Israel. And Jesus is using that language that's very well known to that culture. And he likens the Pharisees of that day to those Jewish leaders back in the day of Ezekiel. I wonder, I wonder what Jesus would say about us today. I wonder how he feels about us when he sees us floundering, when he sees us majoring in the minors. You know what I mean when I say that? Sometimes we, we have our tradition our traditions that we've come along that have been passed down to us from generation to generation, and then all of a sudden those traditions uh, are the same thing as, as what the Bible says, the laws that God has for us to keep and to follow. I wonder if God looks at us and sees us. <laughs> they're just harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lifeless rules. We chase after things that will never fulfill us. Mm. Look at the second thing Jesus says here in verse 37. Jesus, I'm in Matthew 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There's a window, there's a window when grain is ripe, but not overly ripe, okay? Those of you who, uh, who are farmers understand this. There's a window when the grain is ripe and it's ready, but it's not overly ripe. And you've got to try to harvest uh, that grain during that window of opportunity. Mark, am I right? And if something happens where you can't, 
when, when the snows come or when, when we get too much rain and then you can't get your equipment in there, what, what happens? It's very possible that, that if that crop stays in the field too long, it's going to rot. It'll just become food for insects or locusts or any other animal that, that will have it. There's just that brief opportunity when that grain is ready, when it's ready for harvest, when it's ready to be picked. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? You would think he would say immediately, go out there and harvest. Go out there and harvest that ripe grain. But what does he say to them? Pray. He says, pray. You get on your knees and you pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers out. That's the first thing he told them to do. You pray. Pray that the Lord of harvest would send out workers. And he was going to send them out. They were going to go out and harvest, you know. But, but the first thing was for them to pray about it. Oh, my goodness. I didn't get to preach last Sunday, so I, I, I want to preach two sermons today. Hang with me just for a few more minutes, okay? I want you to notice two words here at the beginning of chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. He called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He called his 12 disciples. A disciple is a, is a, is a learner, uh, a student, if you will. They, 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 they came to Jesus. He was the teacher. He was the rabbi. They were the student. He called his 12 disciples out. Now look at verse 2. These are the names of the 12, what? Apostles. First, Simon, who is Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So he says, these are the, the 12 disciples that, that Jesus had, and then these are the 12 apostles. So they go from being students, learners of the rabbi, to what? The word apostle just simply means one who is sent, one who is sent out. comes from the Greek word apostolos. It just simply means one who has been sent for a purpose. That's what happens with us. We come here. We learn. We, we, we open the word together. We encourage one another. We spur each other on to love and to good deeds. We come here and we learn from God. Why? So that we can be sent into the world to reap a harvest. And I'm telling you, folks, I'm telling you, there's a brief opportunity there is a window of opportunity in the life of each person, and we've got to be sensitive to that. There, there needs to be um, an expectation that God is going to do something with us. There's got to be an urgency on our part that there is, there, there's that window of opportunity that we can reap a harvest and expect that God is going to be with us every step of the way, knowing that he will. What, what if God and Jesus are not just in the past? What, what if God, what if God still works now? 
What if Jesus has compassion for people now? Not just in Matthew chapter 9 or Mark chapter 5. What if Christ has compassion for people now? What would God be pleased to do here and now? What if the next great awakening in the United States of America were to begin with a handful of people who call themselves the Northside Church of Christ? What if God wanted to do some things now, like he did then. Wouldn't that be really cool if God decided he wanted to use us? <laughs> Wouldn't that be so humbling to think that the creator might want to, to use me to reap a harvest? To, to go into that little brief window of opportunity and, and to share the gospel and to bring someone to Christ. Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is ripe, it's plentiful, but the workers are few. And he said then to pray. Pray that God would send out. And then what did he do? He called them his apostles, people that he was sending out into the world. That's what I want to be. That's what, I know that's what you want to be. And God is still up to something. God is still doing something now. He's not just the God of the past. He's not just the God of the used to. He is the God of the here and the now. And Jesus is still desiring people to come to him. Oh, I want you to know that joy. I want you to know that excitement. To, to share your faith and to bring someone into the kingdom. It's, it's the greatest feeling that you'll ever have. Father, help us as we desire to, to be Jesus to this world. Father, thank you for the picture, the snapshot that Jesus gave us of the kingdom and to now know that we are a part of that kingdom and we have been called, Father, to do the same, to heal, to heal diseases, uh, maybe not with a physical touch, but, Father, with the power of your spirit, uh, what is a greater healing, sight to the blind or for helping a spiritually blind person to come to you? Father, help us to understand that's the greater healing. Not just healing a crippled man, but, but allowing a man to walk with you all the days of eternity. Father, how humbling it is to know that you love us and want us to partner with you in this great thing that we call the kingdom. Father, thank you. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.